listening to Appalachian Words, the show about the language and culture of Appalachia. I'm your host, Jennifer Heinmiller. I am co-author of the Dictionary of Southern Appalachian English, a historical dictionary that is over 1.3 million words long, covers all sorts of words from Appalachia, from a hind to Ewans to everything in between. Appalachian English is a rich language with a history that stretches back hundreds of years. But outside of the region, there are more stereotypes than honest conversation about the culture. So, in an effort to bring this language and its history to a wider audience, I decided to start this show. For each episode, if you've been hanging around for a little while, even though we've been on a hiatus, you know that I read and discuss various entries in the dictionary, and I highlight parts of Appalachian culture and history. I also talk sometimes about how the dictionary is set up and the process that went into compiling it. I welcome your questions, comments, stories, or any other message you'd like to send to me. And thank you so much to those of you who have sent messages, uh, inquiries, and whatnot uh, in the past few months. I know it's been quite a while since I've done an episode. Um, You know, life gets crazy, and um, one reason life has been crazy is because the dictionary has been in the final stages of publication and I have been a bit wrapped up in that making sure everything is good to go uh, for the final shove uh, if you will uh, as well as uh, some other projects that I'm working on Um, but as of today it seems like summer has set in here for real in western North Carolina it is humid as all get out and the woods look like a jungle I'm an avid trail runner, and lately it feels more like running through a tropical rainforest than a deciduous forest of North America, but actually the Asheville area is classified as a temperate rainforest climate zone, I believe, so there you go. I guess that makes sense. Uh, Anyway, um, so speaking of the dictionary and the progress, I have received several messages um, asking how it's going, when it's going to be out. Uh, if it's on schedule, things of that nature, and I am beyond thrilled to report that yesterday there was a giant package on my doorstep. A very heavy package. Can you guess what was inside? Okay, I'll end the suspense. It was the dictionary. It arrived, um, so I received the very first copy hot off the press Uh, from the University of North Carolina Press yesterday and I can tell you it is absolutely gorgeous I am I'm holding it in my hand can hear the paper beautiful sound (laughs) it is it's absolutely beautiful Um, UNC just did a fantastic job with it Uh, the paper quality is amazing Um, just the font is very easy to read The layout is very easy to navigate. I mean, well, (laughs) of course I had a hand in that, but um, it's just, it's very easy to use. I am just beyond impressed with the product that UNC helped me produce. Um, Like thumbing through it here, there are all sorts of gorgeous photos uh, that I worked with National Park Service to input uh, in the dictionary and um, they just printed beautifully. And I think it'll really give you guys a sense of Appalachia during the time that Joseph Hall started his initial research and recordings of this area. And I am just, I don't know, I can't tell you how pleased I am to see it and actually have it in my hands um, at this point. And uh, it also smells really good. Does anybody else like the smell of new books? Maybe it's just something specific to academic types like me, but 
Uh, I enjoy it, so <laughs> it's an added bonus. Um, so we have the main text here with, you know, the thousands of entries and headwords. Um, there's also a beautiful table here that's a complete index of the people that Joseph Hall interviewed back in the 30s uh, up through the 70s uh, with some of their information, such as their communities, their ages, when they were interviewed, what their occupation was. Uh, we have an extensive grammar and syntax section. So if you are a linguist or interested in how Appalachian grammar and syntax differs from standard American English, I think you'll find that of interest. Uh, we have two different bibliographies in the back, so if you are in the mood for further reading on many, many topics for uh, Appalachian English and culture and history, there is a multitude for you to choose from. Um, I am just so excited. Uh, this is uh, the end of a 13-year journey for me uh, working on this, so I hope you all like it. Um, and uh, it is officially on sale June 28th. So it is June 8th when I'm recording this right now. So yeah, 20 days to go and you should start seeing it in bookstores if you're in the region. Um, otherwise, you can order it online. It is available through Amazon, of course. It is also available through Barnes & Noble. Um, it is available directly through UNC Press, and I highly recommend ordering it directly through UNC Press. I'll drop a link in the show notes. Um, if you order it directly through UNC, they're having a 40% off sale right now. I don't know how long it's going to last, but there's a link, uh, there's like a banner at the top of the page. If you click on that, it'll give you information about the code to use, and that is significant savings because as of right now, uh, the purchase price for the volume is $169, which I realize is a bit hefty, but then the book is a bit hefty too. <laughs> so um, I think it's really a great deal if you get it for 40% off. It makes a great gift um, if you want to you know, stock up before Christmas or the holidays or birthdays. Uh, anybody who's interested in the region, I really think it would make just a, a beautiful uh, gift. So that is your chance to get it for slightly discounted price um, and I am planning to put out another episode right around the official sale date. I have been planning for a while to do an episode detailing uh, everything that went into the compilation of the dictionary, the editing process, um, where we got the original material, um, just everything start to finish, give you kind of a, a deep dive into the process of compiling an enormous historical dictionary. Um, so you can look forward to that in a few weeks. For today's episode, um, I thought that I would do something a little bit more seasonal as I like to do. Um, since it's been so hot and it already feels like high summer uh, some days, even though it's still early June, I started thinking about that old phrase uh, about corn being knee high by the 4th of July. And I started looking into it. We don't really have that phrase in the dictionary material, um, at least not that I can remember. So uh, don't jump on me if I'm wrong about that, but I know that's not one of our main headwords. But anyway, um, I started seeing the fields being planted here, you know, weeks back. Um, but I started wondering, is that actually true? Because it seems like at least 
in Appalachia and even up into Ohio, Pennsylvania, it seems like the corn is typically quite a bit taller than your knees uh, by the 4th of July. I mean, well, it's at least, it's taller than my knees and I'm a fairly tall person uh, for, for a female. Um, and so I started wondering and I looked into it. So this is an old adage. Um, not quite sure exactly where it came from. Um, but there's some questions about whether it means a person's knee or a horse's knee. So one of the theories is that it actually referred to riding through the cornfields to kind of inspect your crops on horseback and it should actually be up to the horse's knee at that point. Which makes a little more sense, but that still seems a bit low to me. Um, so I was looking around and actually According to, who was it? I think it was the Iowa Corn Growers Association. They say that under good conditions, Iowa corn plants typically reach a height of eight feet by midsummer. Uh, I think July 4th is pretty close to what we would consider midsummer um, in North America. I don't know, what do you consider midsummer? To me, it's somewhere around there. I don't know if we have an actual Midsummer? We have the summer solstice, but technically that marks the beginning of summer. So now I'm really thinking about this, but I know a horse's knee is nowhere near eight feet high. So it's a little bit of a mystery. Um, but so my mind wandered down that path and I started looking at the various terms in the dictionary that we have uh, regarding corn. And as you can imagine, there are quite a few Corn was definitely a staple crop uh, in Appalachia, various regions of Appalachia. Um, and corn was also a major ingredient in uh, many things, including uh, breads and alcohol. Uh, and as, as you know, I'm sure you're well aware, um, making alcohol was a big industry, uh, you know, kind of a cottage industry family industry uh, in Appalachia for many years and continues to be, actually. I mean, you go down highways here and you can see billboards for any number of um, moonshine distilleries, which is typically made from corn, although it varies. So I thought I would take a look at the various uses of corn and some of the terms uh, surrounding that. So the first thing that I came across was something called cane corn which is homemade whiskey. Um, and this comes from Cain, as you might suspect, the character in the Old Testament book of Genesis. So for this one, we only have one citation, but it's a pretty interesting one that gives you a lot of variance uh, for this type of whiskey. So this is from 1952 um, by McCall, who writes, if you were invited to share a little something, whether it be called moonshine, corn juice, nub and booze, cane corn, white mule, stump juice, white lightning, old nick, huda obi joyful, or mountain dew, you should be warned that the thing meant is that powerful rank poison what cheers the heart of even a man with a nagging wife. <laughs> Not sure about the nagging wife part, but those are some pretty colorful descriptions. Um, I've heard most of those, of course, uh, at this point, working on this dictionary. Um, and it also brings up uh, Mountain Dew, which I think most of us today know as the soft drink. But um, historically speaking, it was one of the main terms used to refer to corn whiskey or moonshine or, or whatever you'd like to call it now. 
so we also have, um, let's see here. We have just whiskey that was called corn in general. It's just called corn. So if someone used the term corn, it didn't actually mean the corn. It meant the alcohol made from the corn. So for this one, we have several examples going back to 1939 um, from a guide to Tennessee under the Federal Workers Project. So this was actually issued by the government uh, for one of the government programs back in the 30s as kind of a rebuilding um, for the Great Depression. So this one says, under the leaves in the hollows, they stashed or cashed away the fresh corn, in parentheses, moonshine, in 10-gallon kegs and let it charter for months which is very interesting, um, calling it just corn. And you know, if the government was writing this in official publications, that means it was very widespread by that point. Because I don't think, you know, you really had government uh, officials who were well-versed in Appalachian English. I could be wrong about that, but um, it seems like it must have been a pretty prominent term uh, for the alcohol at that point. Then we jump ahead to 1949, um, a book about moonshining by Maurer, saying so-called corn whiskey is still made, although the pure corn or straight corn of older days is now practically non-existent. Sounds like he's mourning the, the mixing of corn with other ingredients, um, which could be, well, a number of things. We'll have to get into that at a, another point. Um, and then in the 60s, we have 1963, Edwards, who wrote, When the doctor got near the top of this ridge, he took another heavy drink from the bottle of corn to help defeat the inclement weather. Not sure whether or not that would have worked, <laughs> but hopefully it made the doctor feel better. And then we also have uh, corn beer. Um, which is not quite the same as corn whiskey. Now, I have never even been inside a distillery. I, I don't really drink a lot, and I don't know much about uh, moonshine or the distilling process. Um, so this was a bit of a learning process for me as well. Um, but the explanation here that Joseph Hall gathered in one of his recorded interviews in 1939 is that corn beer was the fermented mash that is distilled in the making of whiskey. And then we have a little bit more evidence from a 1974 book, Mountain Spirits by Dabney, um, which says the mash bubbles so much that it starts rolling literally and keeps on for a day or two days. When the bubbles stop rising and the cap disappears, the mash, now called, quote, corn beer or distiller's beer, becomes a soupy yellow and is ready to be distilled. So I thought that was an interesting one. I would have just thought that corn beer was another name for the whiskey that's produced, but actually it's quite different and it's part of that uh, production process. Um, I thought it was also interesting that we can have just that word corn used as a verb and it means to plant a field in corn. So to sow your corn in for a crop. And we have several examples for this one as well. Uh, one of them was 1940, Jesse Stewart, Trees of Heaven. Jesse Stewart wrote several books um, set in Appalachia, and he was um, a native of the area, so he, he knows his stuff about it. So he wrote, 
I'd corn this land three years, then I'd sow it in wheat and orchard grass. So it's such a great example of corn being used as a verb, which I honestly had not heard before. And it's also a great example of farming knowledge and culture because what he's alluding to here is switching out the crops, like crop rotation. If you've done any farming or gardening, I'm sure you've heard of this, but it's important to rotate your crops so that you're not growing the same thing on the same piece of land year after year after year because it will deplete different minerals and nutrients in the soil. So when you rotate the crops, the first crop will take out certain nutrients, of course, but also add others. And then when you rotate it with another complementary crop the following year, it takes different nutrients and then puts in other nutrients. So you can really get a good uh, balance in your soil this way. We also have um, some examples from Williams from 1961. We have, he's got a good little piece of crop and land there, but he won't corn it nor hay it nother. So I'm not sure what was going on with this character, but it uh, sounds like he wouldn't plant corn or hay. Uh, and then we have um, the Verbs of Mountain Speech, 1962, by the same author. He grasses a field after he has corned it for a few years. Um, just another beautiful example of that uh, verb usage um, and more evidence of the type of crop rotation that they would do. Or in this case, once they used a field for corn for a few years, they might grow just some sort of grass on it to kind of give it a break, if you will, um, and plant something that would return more nutrients to the soil rather than deplete it. So we also have corn used in other ways. Um, if you've ever seen corn cobs, you may have seen, uh, I know corn cob pipes come to mind, especially for American listeners. Um, you probably think of Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, um, that kind of uh, era. Um, so that was certainly part of it. Uh, but corn cobs were also used in games. So here's another uh, interesting one to me. This was new to me, a cob battle. So this was a mock battle in which children throw corn cobs at one another. <laughs> it doesn't sound like there were a lot of rules in these battles. Um, but it was apparently pretty widely known and a game that was enjoyed by a lot of kids all over the region for decades at least. The earliest evidence that uh, we have in this dictionary is from 1946, Lassiter, who writes about various games that were played. A favorite game, which was usually for boys, was, boys only, excuse me, was a cob battle. The opposing sides armed themselves with a good supply of cobs and then the battle was on. The game usually went along all night until someone wanting to make some special gains began using cobs which had been well soaked in water. It took only a few of these to register a knockout blow. I'm not sure if he means that literally. I hope not, but <laughs> I've never, I can't say I've ever been pelted with a soaking wet corn cob, but it does not sound very pleasant. Um, a few decades later, we have an example from 1974 from Ogle who writes, the big game was cob fighting and pitching horseshoes. And then in the 80s, we have a series of interviews that were conducted in the Smoky Mountains uh, with longtime residents, um, older folks who had spent the majority, if not all of their lives in the Smoky Mountains. And so this speaker said, 
Then we would have what we called corn cob fights on Sunday afternoons. We'd throw those cobs back and forth at each other. And then 1991, Haynes, uh, writing about uh, Haywood County, wrote, On rainy days in any season, older boys would have corn cob battles around the crib and barn. So this was certainly widespread. Um, and then this is another instance where cob was used as a verb, which meant to pelt with corn cobs, especially in children's play. So even more specifically in this type of cob battle. And we have evidence of this uh, from Joseph Hall in 1962, who uh, wrote that uh, one speaker said, then we'd get around the barn and play. We'd call it cobbing each other. We'd break corn cobs and throw them at each other. We'd peep around and catch one. Why, we'd throw it and try to hit him. <laughs> Sounds pretty straightforward to me. Um, looking at other, other terms related to corn, um, of course, we have the equipment that was needed uh, in harvesting corn and storing it. Storage was always a big issue in Appalachia because the weather is so changeable here. Uh, it's one of those places, I know many places say this, but it truly is one of those places where you can say, if you don't like the weather, wait 10 minutes <laughs> because it will change that quickly. Um, but we also have a range of temperatures here. The winters can be very cold, especially if you're in the uh, the higher elevations. So storage during the winter, as well as the warm months, was something that everybody thought about. So for this, we had something called a corn bin, which was, as Wilson wrote in 1960, a place to store corn, usually shelled corn. In 1967, the Dictionary of American Regional English Survey found the same thing, um, that it was a structure for storing specifically shelled corn. And that citation comes from Brasstown, North Carolina, so not too far from me here in Western North Carolina. We also have a corn box. So this is slightly different. We're not talking about shelled corn in this instance. Uh, and we have a great example here from a 1998 book by Hamby that says, Sometimes they would plan a hayride when it snowed. The young men would take the farm sled and put the slatted corn box on it. The box was about six feet long and four feet wide with a floored bottom, but with slatted sides and ends to allow air to circulate through if the husked corn had been left in it overnight before hauling it to the granary or if the unhusked corn had been hauled away to the barn halfway, or the barn hallway, excuse me, for a corn husking. The three-foot-high box would be filled up to the top with hay, but after six or seven people sat down on the hay, it was considerably less high, as you can imagine. So that gives you a little picture of some of the implements used on farms, which I don't think a lot of us think about, you know, when we think about farming, we think of tractors and fields and barns, maybe silos, but not these smaller structures, um, which were once so integral to this farm life in Appalachia. And if you're interested in that, I was also thinking of doing an episode um, sometime in the future, hopefully not too distant future, um, about those kinds of things to give a broader picture of farm life in Appalachia because it's such an important part of the culture, uh, whether on a small scale or large scale. So to round out 
I thought I would take a look at two foods that used um, cornmeal as ingredients. And these were pretty popular throughout Appalachia uh, during different time periods. So the first one, this is one of my favorites. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but we have a cat head biscuit. So this is a very large biscuit. Um, and this was the size of a cat's head, hence the name. So usually biscuits were made uh, from, you know, typical wheat flour, white flour, enriched flour, depending on what you could get your hands on. Of course, later in the 20th century, it was from store-bought flour. Uh, but earlier, sometimes the flour didn't go that far, or you had to mix it with other things. And sometimes cornmeal would go in there. So alongside cat head biscuits, you would have cornbread or corn pone, which it was also called. Um, and Hall has evidence of this. In 1960, his book, Smoky Mountain Folks, he wrote, it was a novel experience to eat cat heads or corn pone three times a day. That sounds novel indeed and also delicious. I am definitely a fan of cornbread and biscuits. And the last one I have here is a different one. So this is from um, another culture of Appalachia. So this is chestnut bread. And this was a heavy bread made originally by the Cherokee from the nuts of the American chestnut tree, which is now, I believe it is completely extinct. Um, but the Cherokee, this was one of their staple foods uh, and they would often mix it with cornmeal um, and this was something that the European settlers or, you know, European uh, heritage settlers picked up from the Cherokee and they started making their own version of this. So it really became this multicultural food and different regions and communities and even families had their own recipes depending on the taste and what was available. Um, in 1939, Hall did some interviews about this and he... He learned a little bit more about some of these other ingredients that people would use. And so one speaker said that lots of people made chestnut bread and bean bread. And so they mixed dried beans and cornmeal. So it sounds like almost a complete meal just in this bread where you would have chestnuts and dried beans and cornmeal all in the same bread. Um, and one of the, uh, the benefits of this type of bread is that it, it was heavy, uh, very dense, very easy to travel very easy to, you know, put in a bag when you're out working in the fields or, um, you know, building your, your house, any number of things. Um, and there's another great example from a 2015 book called New Roots um, that talks a little bit in more detail about this type of bread. The author writes, Paul Dillman of Kuala Boundary makes traditional Cherokee chestnut bread but he says he's never tasted an American chestnut, which of course we know why, because um, it no longer exists, sadly. Anyway, the author goes on, chestnut bread is a variation of bean bread, a traditional staple food among the Cherokee. It's prepared much the same way, just substituting chestnuts for pinto beans. The American chestnuts that formerly served as the base for this dish were largely wiped out by chestnut blight a pathogenic fungus brought to this country by imported Asian chestnuts in the late 19th century. Dillman uses Chinese chestnuts in his chestnut bread, which he says are larger than the American variety. So it's really wonderful to know that 
well, five or six years ago, there were people actively making this bread still. I've never tasted it, but I would love to get my hands on a recipe and uh, try to make it or taste it myself. Um, if you've ever made it or if you're familiar with it, I would love to hear from you. Um, I'm very curious about these uh, heritage recipes from all the different Appalachian cultures. But uh, I think I will leave off for there today. It's a bit of a shorter episode, but I wanted to check in with you all um, and let you know that the dictionary is available very soon. It's still up for pre-order, but I would advise putting in your order soon. We are projecting to sell out of our first run of printing, which is very exciting. Uh, it is a beautiful book. And for today, I thought I would close with the dedication from the dictionary, which I wrote, to give you um, a little taste of what the dictionary is all about. Um, so you can look forward to that when it arrives on your doorstep, as I was. This book is dedicated to the past, present, and future generations who call the mountains of Appalachia their home. It is intended as a token of the author's appreciation for these communities who share the beauty of their language, culture, and home with the world. And with that, I bid you a good evening, and until next time, take care.